Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to another show. Happy Thursday. Thanks for being here. Okay, now I like a thanks for being here more than I like we appreciate you. I think you're on the you're on the right journey, but you haven't, you know, gotten to the end yet. Crack the code. Yeah, you haven't really gotten there yet, but I like where you're going. I appreciate that positivity, Ryan. It's encouraging, definitely. I mean, don't um, hold your breath. It won't last for long. Oh, thank you. That's very encouraging as well. Well, we've got a lot of show for you today. Uh, Coming up, we're going to be getting into Biden's latest announcements around everything from climate change to COVID-19 relief, Uh, plus why you might feel sad when good things happen. And you're not alone, let me tell you. We're going to be helping you navigate that here on the show today. But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. Dr. Fauci is back and ready to go. (laughs) I I can't say that here. (laughs) Sorry. You know, it's actually. um, I know what you're about to say. Yes. You know what I was where I was going with this. He spoke to the press. That's what you were about to get us with in the unemployment (laughs) line. He spoke to the press directly at a briefing today versus being behind or on the sidelines of Trump and responded to a reporter asking him whether he felt liberated now. I mean, obviously, I don't want to be going back, you know, over history, but it was very clear that there were things that were said, uh, be it regarding things like hydroxychloroquine and other things like that, that really was uncomfortable because they were not based on scientific fact. I can tell you, I, I take no pleasure at all in being in a situation of contradicting the president. So it was really something that you didn't feel that you could actually say something and there wouldn't be any repercussions about it. The idea that you can get up here and talk about what you know, what the evidence, what the science is, and know that's it, let the science speak. It is somewhat of a liberating feeling. I mean, these clips coming out of these press briefings and these um, edits showing what they were like when Trump was in office, the first press briefing, you know, with uh, what's his bucket? I've already forgotten his name. Sean Spicer. Spicer, that guy. I almost forgot him. They they showed a clip of him uh, versus the new press secretary. And it's like night and day. It's unbelievable. I'm sure SNL is going to have a lot of fun with this one, by the way. Uh, But let's get back to Fauci. He also added that new data shows that the COVID-19 vaccines currently on the market may not be as effective in guarding against new, more contagious strains of the coronavirus. Now, speaking of the vaccine, Amazon is offering to help President Biden with the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccines while seeking to get its employees inoculated at the earliest appropriate time. In a letter written to Biden, uh, Amazon Worldwide Consumer CEO Dave Clark said that the e-commerce giant is prepared to leverage, leverage its operations to help vaccinate 100 million Americans in the first 100 days of the president's administration. They said our scale allows us to make a meaningful impact immediately in the fight against COVID-19, and we stand ready to assist you in this effort. The letter also calls for vaccinating their employees uh, because they're essential workers. So, Yeah, I was going to say, it kind of sounds like they're just going to make their employees work more, and I'm hoping that they get to get the vaccine first, but cool. I'm happy that's a part of the plan. Yeah, everyone's on board to help. And that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Yeah, so an out gay actor famous for playing uh, it straight approves of straight actors playing gay for pay. We got a lot to get into. It's time for your T-Report, those pop culture stories trending right now. 
And that actor I am speaking of is Neil Patrick Harris. Now, this isn't the normal conversation we have about representation. It's not one of those things that, you know, should actors play, you know, should straight actors play gay characters? Actually, you know, Neil took it a step too far by revealing this. He said he thinks that directors should hire the best actor regardless of orientation, even claiming that it's sexy when straight actors play gay. He Mm. said, I think there's something sexy about casting a straight actor to play a gay role if they're willing to invest a lot into it. So a couple things here. Major, 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 major problematic statement, in my opinion. It falls back into this trope of, like, gay men, like, you know, fetishizing and kind of, like, sexualizing straight men. And this idea of, like, oh, it's so sexy to see a straight guy play it. And it's just like, ew, what is this, 2002? Like, it's kind of gross at this point. Like, what are we doing here? Well, I understand that maybe this is his... um sexual I not sexual preference but like he's a this is attractive to him and that's a personal thing no that's not a personal it's problematic actually because it's it's rooted in internalized homophobia well yeah there are a lot of things I mean I think um your own like what happens behind closed doors and what you're interested in sexually is personal but I think that to say this on such a a big like uh, spotlight or a big platform not thinking about the problematic nature of it is what is the problem, right? So this isn't like, shit, this isn't like liking to be spanked or liking to be choked in the bedroom. This is literally saying that he would, he thinks it's sexy that a straight guy takes up space to play a gay role that could have went to an actual gay role because he finds it to be sexy to watch that straight guy to be able to go there and those yeah. gay things like it's some like soft core gay porn. That's that's not sexy. That's like very childish and very kind of like rooted into, in my opinion, especially because he played a gay, a character who was basically straight and he's kind of known he's famous for that, which is no problem. Yeah. I think he did that great. Um, but I think to kind of insinuate and say that it's sexy to like watch a straight guy go there is just like weird to me. Do you think that's because he wants to also play straight roles and he want he was like he kind of wants to keep it open for everyone? But nobody's saying that, that it's not. I think it's talking about giving the opportunity, the same opportunities for everyone on that spectrum, right? To be able to play any type of role. If you're going to let straight people play gay roles, allow gay folks and queer folks and trans Mm -hmm. folks to go into that same realm without having to be identified as such. And so I think he's kind of missing the whole point there and then sexualizing it. I find it to be weird, but I would love to know what you all are thinking. Hit us up at LGT Show. Let us know. No, because girl, I don't know. That is so weird. And I got more tea report coming up next. Between him and Army Hammer, it's been a busy 2021 already. Okay, uh-uh, coming you can't up on the show. Cannibalism to this. <laughs> I know. Uh, <laughs> Biden has announced a new national plan to fight COVID 19. We're going to explain all of that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. President Biden's first and second day executive actions are focusing on the coronavirus. Today, he said he's committed to his administration's plan to administer 100 million COVID vaccine shots in his first 100 days in office. And back with us is Doug Usher, leading strategist and pollster at Forbes Tate Partners. Thanks for being here, because I think the last time we spoke was election night and it wasn't seeming um, so optimistic at that point or positive. You know, when you look back on it, if if three weeks later and then a month later were played back on election night, it would have looked like a lot better than we thought back then. Yeah, it feels good, right? Right now, what's uh, the immediate reaction to Biden versus Trump's approach to the pandemic just in these two days? It's apples and oranges. It's, you know, you couldn't imagine a bigger contrast. You see Biden saying on day one from the inauguration speech all the way through his actions, this is his number one priority. He's going to put the full force of the federal government in any way they can, that he can and push for legislation to address the pandemic because he just sees it as critical, not just to success of the U.S., but his success of his presidency. Yeah, when you're thinking about the economy and COVID and how this all plays out it feels like there's a lot of pressure on Joe Biden. If he doesn't do the right thing immediately, then it's going to be like the dark cloud that shadows him his entire term. Is that something you're seeing, especially with the importance of so many businesses and everything closing because of COVID? Yeah, there's no question. I mean, I think you've compared Donald Trump, who basically was saying, let's just pretend it's not here and everything will be okay. 
and realizing that that's a failed approach. And Biden saying, we're going to throw everything at it. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't work, then there's nothing we can do. But this is what I'm betting my presidency on. And it goes from vaccines to direct relief to helping states to getting kids back in school. Everything starts with COVID, dealing with the pandemic, and then giving relief to those who need it. Yeah, and it seems like uh, Trump's approach, obviously, being a Republican was a bit more hands off, like let's not involve the federal government as much. Let's rely on local officials and state officials. Um, and I feel like from the results, we're seeing like that didn't work. Do you think this approach is going to still, I guess, um, divide the par the parties even more? Yeah, that's that's the real question is, you know, normally they, they talk about the honeymoon uh, for a new president in the first hundred days. I mean, I think we're down to the point where you've got 100 hours of honeymoon, right, before the rancor seeps right in. But I think he's made it pretty clear what he wants to do. And I think Republicans were just as frustrated with Democrats inside the just as frustrated as Democrats inside the Beltway about the failures in the pandemic. So I think when it comes to pandemic relief and moving aggressively, I think he's going to have a lot of bipartisan support, at least in the short term. All right. Again, you're hearing from Doug Usher, leading strategist and pollster at Forbes Tate Partners, as we talk about uh, COVID-19 relief and Biden administration, uh, what they are planning to do. So, Doug, this $400 billion COVID-19 plan uh, that the administration is proposing is part of this $1.9 trillion economic relief proposal. It hasn't yet been approved by the Congress, though. So uh, what's the viability of all this happening? And I guess, is everything being pushed forward just by executive orders right now? Right. So not only has Congress not pushed it together, the Senate isn't even organized yet, meaning you need to get organization from Schumer and McConnell before you can even start having any effort on the Senate side. Um, there's lots of inside baseball maneuvering that can happen, including something called reconciliation, that where the Senate can move with 50 votes and get this thing passed. I think they're just moving in you know, with two packages, one that's direct COVID relief, dealing with the pandemic, and the second is getting the economy economy moving. I think it's going to be a tough slog to get it, them both through. Um, but if he can't do it now, he's not going to be able to do it at any time. It's a, I mean, this is $2 trillion. We're talking about real money here. I mean, but on top of this, and then on top of the whole impeachment thing with Trump, it just feels like there's too much to juggle at this point. What's going to get dropped? Like, which ball is going to get dropped at this point, do you think? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, things don't happen until they do. And I mean that in terms of Two weeks ago, after the insurrection in the Capitol, everyone said, oh, my God, Biden can't be inaugurated on the Capitol steps. We've got to be worried about security. Well, guess what? They took care of it. They did it. Mm -hmm. It was beautiful. And there was no problem. Now they're saying you can't do this. You can't do that. I think he's saying this is all there is right now in America. We are in a, we're in a worse position than we've been in when we've been at war. And if we yeah. can't come together to do this right now, there's nothing we can do. And so he may get it done. He may not get it done. But I think we can't say, I hear what you're saying, Ryan. But, you know, at this point, he's saying this is not actually too much to juggle. You can do this impeachment trial. Yeah. You know, that, that may be, you know, if one ball gets dropped, I'd say that's the thing that gets dropped a few weeks. Right. Yeah, that's what Trump maybe is hoping. Um, they've also announced, Dr. Fauci, that, they, that the U.S. Have, has rejoined the World Health Organization. Why was this such an important move so quickly? I think to the point you were making earlier about executive orders, there are things you can do symbolically on day one that show a lot. And whether it's that, or I think even more striking has been the immigration policy reversals that he did over the first, first day um, and other sorts of actions, including firing some Trump appointees. That's what's really important. It shows we're serious, we're doing this. The other thing that's the good news here is that Johnson & Johnson is about to release their vaccine. That's the next vaccine in the list. And, you know, no one knows for sure what the results are, but early indications are that it's the best of all of them because you don't need to freeze it. Mm. And it only takes one shot. Okay. Interesting. Well, we could Interesting. use that. Uh, that was leading strategist and pollster Doug Usher from Forbes Tate Partners. Thanks again for being here. Thank you. Now coming up on the show, have we reached the end of the QAnon movement and what President Biden is going to do to stop it once and for all? That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. President Biden's first and second day executive actions are focusing on the coronavirus. Today, he said he's committed to his administration's plan to administer 100 million COVID vaccine shots in his first 100 days in office. And back with us is Doug Usher, leading strategist and pollster at Forbes Tate Partners. 
Thanks for being here because I think the last time we spoke was election night and it wasn't seeming um, so optimistic at that point, positive. You know, when you look back on it, if if three weeks later and then a month later were played back on election night, it would have looked like a lot better than we thought back then. Yeah, it feels good, right? Right now, what's uh, the immediate reaction to Biden versus Trump's approach to the pandemic just in these two days? It's apples and oranges. It's, you know, you couldn't imagine a bigger contrast. You see Biden saying on day one from the inauguration speech all the way through his actions, this is his number one priority. He's going to put the full force of the federal government in any way they can, that he can and push for legislation to address the pandemic because he just sees it as critical, not just to success of the U.S., but his success of his presidency. Yeah, when you're thinking about the economy and COVID and how this all plays out, it feels like there's a lot of pressure on Joe Biden. If he doesn't do the right thing immediately, then it's going to be like the dark cloud that is shadows him his entire term. Is that something you're seeing, especially with the importance of so many businesses and everything closing because of COVID? Yeah, there's no question. I mean, I think you've compared Donald Trump, who basically was saying, let's just pretend it's not here and everything will be okay and realizing that that's a failed approach. And Biden saying, we're going to throw everything at it. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't work, then there's nothing we can do. But this is what I'm betting my presidency on. And it goes from vaccines to direct relief to helping states to getting kids back in school. Everything starts with COVID, dealing with the pandemic, and then giving relief to those who need it. Yeah. And it seems like uh, Trump's approach, obviously, being a Republican was a bit more hands off, like let's not involve the federal government as much. Let's rely on local officials and state officials. Um, and I feel like from the results, we're seeing like that didn't work. Do you think this approach is going to still, I guess, um, divide the par- the parties even more? Yeah, that's that's the real question is, you know, normally they, they talk about the honeymoon uh, for a new president in the first hundred days. I mean, I think we're down to the point where you've got 100 hours of honeymoon, right, before the rancor seeps right in. But I think he's made it pretty clear what he wants to do. And I think Republicans were just as frustrated with Democrats inside the just as frustrated as Democrats inside the Beltway about the failures in the pandemic. So I think when it comes to pandemic relief and moving aggressively, I think he's going to have a lot of bipartisan support, at least in the short term. All right. Again, you're hearing from Doug Usher, leading strategist and pollster at Forbes Tate Partners, as we talk about uh, COVID-19 relief and Biden administration, uh, what they are planning to do. So, Doug, this $400 billion COVID-19 plan uh, that the administration is proposing is part of this $1.9 trillion economic relief proposal. It hasn't yet been approved by the Congress, though. So uh, what's the viability of all this happening? And uh, I guess, is everything being pushed forward just by executive orders right now? Right. So not only has Congress not pushed it together, the Senate isn't even organized yet, meaning you need to get organization from Schumer and McConnell before you can even start having any effort on the Senate side. Um, There's lots of inside baseball maneuvering that can happen, including something called reconciliation, that where the Senate can move with 50 votes and get this thing passed. I think they're just moving in with two packages, one that's direct COVID relief, dealing with the pandemic, and the second is getting the economy economy moving. I think it's going to be a tough slog to get them both through. Um, But if he can't do it now, he's not going to be able to do it at any time. It's I mean, this is $2 trillion. We're talking about real money here. I mean, but on top of this, and then on top of the whole impeachment thing with Trump, it just feels like there's too much to juggle at this point. What's going to get dropped? Like, which ball is going to get dropped at this point, do you think? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, things don't happen until they do. And I mean that in terms of two weeks ago, after the insurrection in the Capitol, everyone said, oh, my God, Biden can't be inaugurated on the Capitol steps. We've got to be worried about security. Well, guess what? They took care of it. They did it. Mm -hmm. It was beautiful. And there was no problem. Now they're saying you can't do this. You can't do that. I think he's saying this is all there is right now in America. We are in a, we're in a worse position than we've been in when we've been at war. And if we yeah. can't come together to do this right now, there's nothing we can do. And so he may get it done, he may not get it done, but I think we can't say, I hear what you're saying, Ryan, but you know, at this point he's saying, this is not actually too much to juggle. You can do this impeachment trial. Yeah. You know, that, that may be, you know, if one ball gets dropped, I'd say that's the thing that gets dropped a few weeks. Right. Yeah, that's what Trump maybe is hoping. Um, they've also announced, Dr. Fauci, that, they, that the US have, has rejoined the World Health Organization. Why was this such an important move so quickly? 
I think to the point you were making earlier about executive orders, there are things you can do symbolically on day one that show a lot. And whether it's that, or I think even more striking has been the immigration policy reversals that he did over the first first day um, and other sorts of actions, including firing some Trump appointees. That's what's really important. It shows we're serious. We're doing this. The other thing that's the good news here is that Johnson & Johnson is about to release their vaccine. That's the next vaccine in the list. And, you know, no one knows for sure what the results are, but early indications are that it's the best of all of them because you don't need to freeze it. And it only takes one shot. Okay. Interesting. Well, we could Interesting. use that. Uh, that was leading strategist and pollster Doug Usher from Forbes Tate Partners. Thanks again for being here. Thank you. Now coming up on the show, have we reached the end of the QAnon movement and what President Biden is going to do to stop it once and for all? That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Ted Cruz is continuing to troll all of us. I can't take it. This is his latest, okay? He, of course, spent the last few weeks backing up Trump's baseless allegations of voter fraud that ultimately led to a mob of Trump supporters storming the U.S. Capitol. Uh, well, he decided to weigh in on the new president's decision to repledge to the climate agreement. It's called the Paris Climate Agreement. He tweeted this. By rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, President Biden indicates he's more interested in the views of the citizens of Paris than in the jobs of the citizens of Pittsburgh. This agreement will do little to affect the climate and will harm the livelihoods of Americans. Now, are we on in some sort of alternate reality universe? Like, what is going on? He thinks it's about Paris. I just don't. Well, I don't think, I think trolling is the, the definition of trolling is kind of like having an understanding that what you're That's saying hope, is right? in like it's a joke it's a hoax um in this p moment i think he's actually really being serious i think this is something that a lot of republicans and the trumpians if you want to call them that um believe um but I, it's interesting that he's talking about jobs and and talking about you know disen uh, disenfranchisement in in a way that i felt like he was one of the main people during the voting process and couldn't accept that Trump lost the the election was trying yeah. to disenfranchise so many votes. Um, and so this idea doesn't even, I don't even know like where it's even coming from and even how to really even debate it. Cause it just seems so stupid that it doesn't even make any sense. Like yeah. it's just what? I mean, yeah, the issue is in the end with so many Republicans and President Trump, obviously not really believing in these signs of climate change. It continues this narrative that uh, the Democrats are trying to do these things to take away jobs from Americans and to put money into something that isn't real. And that is just not the case. And just uh, for people who might not know this, the Paris Agreement does not uh, only concern the views of the citizens of Paris. It's not about just Paris. Uh, it's a historic Paris Agreement on climate change aimed at substantially reducing global greenhouse gas emissions. And it was titled that because that was the location where it was signed by 196 countries on December 12th, 2015 at the 2015 United Nations Climate Change Conference, okay? Held in Paris, France. <laughs> Just to be clear, so no one's confused about all of this. Also, Pittsburgh is actually in support of the Paris Climate Agreement, actually. So it's just, it's weird that he's using this opportunity to, one, kind of uh, amplify his own U.S. Senate run in Texas. It doesn't, mm -hmm. it just doesn't matter. Like, it's not, he has nothing to do with Pittsburgh, and everyone in Pittsburgh is like, I mean, there's articles titled, Keep Pittsburgh Out of Your Mouth, Still City to Ted Cruz. Like, there's... People in Pet Pittsburgh don't even care about what he's talking about. So it's just like, where is it really coming from? Yeah. And then the, uh, just as we uh, wrap this up, there's some great responses on Twitter. Uh, this one from Greta Thunberg, who said, so happy that USA has finally rejoined the Pittsburgh agreement. Welcome back. AOC said, nice tweet, Senator Cruz. Quick question. Do you also believe the Geneva Convention was about the views of the citizens of Geneva? Asking for everyone who believes U.S. senators should be competent and not undermine our elections to incite insurrection against the United States. Um, and now, by the way, he is trying to use all of this not to delete that tweet or say, oh, sorry, that was... Um, I guess, um, a not miscommunication, but that was misinformation. I apologize for my error. He's using it now to sell 
free bumper stickers or not sell to give away free bumper stickers. So he posted a tweet saying, who do you stand with Paris or Pittsburgh? If you support blue collar union workers, if you stand for jobs, get your free bumper stickers here on his website. That's Ted Cruz for you. Do your research, you know, be responsible. You're a public figure that has been elected to represent the country. I don't even know how. Anyway, coming up on the show, Pete Buttigieg's sweet message to his husband at his confirmation hearing yesterday. We'll be playing that next on What's Trending this hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, Greenpeace is joining us to share the White House's latest plans to support the environment and climate change. Plus, why Miley Cyrus is being called out after talking about her sexual preferences. Uh, That and more later in the show, in this hour. But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. QAnon believer, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, who we talked about earlier in the show a bit, announced her articles of impeachment against President Biden today. Ooh, but now the gun control advocacy group Every Town for Gun Safety is calling for her to resign in light of allegations that she was involved in Facebook exchanges that denied school shootings. Now, when I mentioned this earlier in the show, mm-hmm. I did not know about her literally denying school uh, shootings. I just yeah. saw the video of her you know, doing articles of impeachment, which I thought, okay, so she's already crazy. Let's go even further. You know, and I don't want to say crazy, but no, she's like, honestly, at this point, it's a joke. Like, you have to call a spade a spade. I mean, that is true. And the advocacy group, along with its grassroots networks, Moms Demand Action and Students Demand Action, they're referencing a Media Matters article that uncovered these exchanges from 2018, where Green allegedly agreed that the 2012 Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting and the 2018 Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting were not real or not done by the people arrested for them. Yeah, I can't. I I literally get lives, children's lives were taken, and she has the nerve to say something like that. It just it baffles me. I can't believe yeah. Georgia voted for her. Like Georgia, for real. Georgia won our election, but they also voted for her. Like the dynamics, the duality. I can't. A lot going on here, and I rem- I wonder if she'll be held accountable in any way besides from these I doubt it. Secrets. I literally doubt it. Well, this morning, Pete Buttigieg had a confirmation hearing around his nomination for U.S. Secretary of Transportation. And in prepared remarks delivered to the panel, he thanked the most important person in his life. So sweet. And I'd like to take a moment to introduce my husband, Chastin Buttigieg, who's uh, here with me today. I'm uh, really proud to have him by my side. I also want to take this chance to thank him for his many sacrifices and his support in making it possible for me to pursue public service. Now, I love that. Really nice that he did that. And Buttigieg will be the first out LGBTQ plus cabinet nominee to be confirmed by the Senate in the history of the country. Uh, Buttigieg also became the first out gay person to have a confirmation hearing for a cabinet level position. Lots of firsts. Mm-hmm. He, yeah. He also turns 39 on Tuesday. And that would make him the youngest person to serve as a transportation secretary. Now, the job, if you're wondering what it is, and I know we talked about this, like, what is this job? What what did they even do? Transportation secretary. Well, it involves overseeing billions of dollars in highway construction funds, tens of thousands of air traffic controllers, and ensuring the safety of everything from jet planes to pipelines. And he has said that one of the first things he's going to do is to uh, make people wear masks when they're, you know, either on public transportation or obviously in the air. Now, Speaker Nancy Pelosi said today that she would soon take steps that would formally launch the second impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump, but refused to offer a specific timeline as they're trying to look at the details in the Senate. Pelosi is expected to transfer the House's article of impeachment against Trump in the coming days. And it's a step that will require the Senate to quickly begin its days-long trial into charges that Trump incited the deadly insurrection at the Capitol earlier this month. Now, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is planning to ask Senate Democrats to begin Trump's impeachment trial in two weeks. He offered his timeline, and he said this, that he wanted to do it in order to give the former president time to prepare a legal defense. 
And that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay, so we got an early yes queen in the tea report today, and it's involving Lin-Manuel Miranda and poet Amanda Gorman. Let's dive into the tea report, those pop culture stories that are trending right now. So while appearing on uh, Good Morning America this morning, Gorman, the youngest inaugural uh, poet in U.S. history, received a surprise message from Lin-Manuel Miranda who told Gorman to keep changing the world one word at a time. Here's a clip. Good morning, Amanda Gorman. It's Lynn Miranda. Congrats again on yesterday. The right words in the right order can change the world. And you proved that yesterday with your brilliant piece. I'm so incredibly proud of you. And I can't wait to see what you write next. Keep changing the world one word at a time. You smashed it. So that's not the only reason why this whole moment is so special. It's honestly because later in another interview, she revealed that Hamilton actually helped her overcome a speech impediment. So, yeah, I'm just kind of obsessed with Mm -hmm. the fact that she went through all of this. She has a speech impediment and look at her now. I mean... Also, Joe Biden. Joe Biden also stuttered most of his life. And so it just is so wonderful to know and see that where she's come from and how powerful she is and that everyone is literally calling her the next Maya Angelou. It's like it's crazy. <laughs> like I can't imagine being in her spot like your life changes overnight. I know. And you mentioned this yesterday. She was up and coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, this isn't the first time she's gotten media attention. I mean, but this is next level. Like oh, no. She literally went from like a few hundred thousand Instagram followers or I think a hundred thousand yeah. over two million yeah i mean when you said it yesterday i was like oh but then they announced last night that uh because she was reacting to her book going number like both of her books going number one and two and they're not even out yet they're not supposed to be out until like september and so people were just pre-ordering and she's already like making it so this changed her life for sure and i'm obsessed with her so yes queen in the tea report i got more coming up next hour All right, well, next up, the White House website is recognizing climate change is real again. What that means in terms of real actions moving forward next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. As President Biden untangles the mess that Trump created, one big focus is climate change and the environment. Just in his first day in office, among many other things, he re-entered into the Paris Agreement and recognized climate change is real again on the White House website. Joining us right now is Ryan Schleter, Senior Communications Specialist with Greenpeace USA, covering climate and energy. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, so how do you feel, I mean, after four years where all this seemed to be denied Completely. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it's great to turn the page. Um, I'm glad to see, you know, a pretty, pretty strong and busy day one from Biden. Um, And I really, I I hope that we get to see more this week and over, you know, the first 100 days of his administration and the next four years. I feel like a lot of environmental activists, they they are saying and praising him for doing what he did on the first day. But I guess moving forward, is that enough, especially what are we trying to accomplish when it comes to climate change, right? And what that means, because it seems like it's a lot of those things can be considered a really progressive, um, which Joe Biden seems like he's more of a moderate than anything. But I guess what do you, what should we like he should be working on next in the in this sense of uh, moving forward when it comes to climate change and taking it super seriously? Yeah. So in terms of what he did on day one, no, it's not enough. Like, not even close. Um, so re-entering the Paris Agreement, great first step, but a total no-brainer. This is something that, like, every single Democratic pre- candidate for president back in the primary promised to do. Like, we literally designed a bingo for, like, watching the presidential debates um, at Greenpeace, and the free square was rejoining the Paris Agreement. <laughs> like, that is how low the, the bar is for that. And revoking the Keystone XL permit, again, like, great step, but President Obama did that. Like we're 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 really just sort of getting back to like zero here, mm-hmm. um, and so un- undoing the damage that Trump did is is really important. But we have to move forward, um, and the the bar for action for Biden isn't set by like what you know pundits on TV deem as possible. It's really set by what the science demands and and what people deserve. And so in order to to really truly build back better for people who have been dealing with climate fuel disasters, you know, hurricanes, wildfires, whatever it is, 
and also dealing with pollution from fossil fuels or petrochemicals or toxic manufacturing, um, there is so much more that we're hoping to see Biden do um, early on. Um, so, you know, and a, a great first step would be stopping the other pipelines that are being built right now. So he stopped Keystone XL. He, could, he can do the same thing to stop the Line 3 pipeline in Minnesota, um, the Dakota Access pipeline, um, you know, got a lot of headlines four years ago, still being built. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of other projects like that across the country. Again, you're hearing from Ryan Schleter right now, Senior Communication Specialist with Greenpeace. I think that, you know, you're in the trenches of this. You know, we talk about this, but a lot of people might not even realize, like, how these actions actually create change. Why are these so significant right now and moving forward for our country, but our place for the rest of the world, right? Biden positioned his whole campaign around building back better, right? Um, helping people recover from the pandemic. Um, and it's really not possible to build back better with fossil fuels. Um, you know, we're part of a, a coalition called Build Back Fossil Free that's trying to push Biden towards action that will help, um, you know, recover from COVID-19, address like massive um, unemployment and economic inequality, um, climate change, racial injustice, all at the same time. And, and really, there are, there are things that he can do that hit that intersection of all of those things from day one. Um, so, you know, he made a promise when he was campaigning to direct 40% of investment in communities of color. Um, we'd like to see that go up to 60, first of all. Um, and that's not something that he's followed through on yet. He, he still has to follow through on a lot of different promises. Um, and, and that way we can, we can really help people, you know, get back to work, um, you know, be able to provide for their families. This is, this is really about well-being for people. It's, it's, it's not about like playing politics on, on any side. I guess you kind of do have to play politics, especially because I think what he said he's trying to do is unite and heal both political parties and just heal the country. So how does he do that with the pushback that most Republicans and conservatives are going to be there facing ready to fight back on this? Yeah, this is absolutely something that we're paying really close attention to at Greenpeace and our partners across the movement because, you know, Joe Biden didn't get elected to the White House by appealing to moderate Republicans. He got elected because Black and Indigenous and Brown organizers across the country broke records in terms of voter turnout to put him into office. So that's who he's accountable to. That's who he needs to be listening to. And the, some of the early signs, like things that he's already done, show that he, he understands that. I think he understands that. But we have to make sure that we hold him accountable to those promises and to the, to the things that those communities deserve and have deserved for so long and have been asking for. So when we talk about things like, you know, stop, stopping pipelines or, um, you know, truly investing in communities that have been, been underserved or are dealing with climate impacts, because the majority of communities that have to deal with climate impacts in hurricane zones and wildfire zones, whatever, are communities of color. Um, that, that's what we're talking about. It's about making good on those promises. So this idea that we're going to do that by uniting with Republicans, you know, half of the party, by the way, which just incited a violent coup and an attack on our democracy, um, I don't think that's really going to work. Um, and, and, you know, there's a, there's a lot of debate right now over whether that approach is going to work. Um, and I, I think we'll see, I hope we'll see um, Biden and the rest of his party come around to the idea that, you know, voters gave them a mandate and they can just act on it. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here and for all the work you're doing. That was Ryan Schleter, a senior communications specialist with Greenpeace USA covering climate and energy. Have a great day. Thank you. Coming up on the show, we found a COVID-19 vaccine in months. So what about one for HIV? Those answers next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. The speed at which we figured out a COVID-19 vaccine is making some people wonder whether this is a possibility for other viruses like HIV and why it hasn't happened yet. Back with us is John Moore, a professor of microbiology and immunology at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York City. Thanks again for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Happy to help out. Yeah, so why has the public and public health response to COVID, why does it bring up comparisons to the age HIV crisis? Well, we all know that we now have licensed coronavirus vaccines within a year of the pandemic starting, which is pretty impressive. And we also all know that we've been working on HIV vaccines for over 30 years. It's all my professional career. So there's a marked difference. But the fundamental reason is that there are two very different viruses. And the coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, is just very much easier to vaccinate against than HIV. 
Yeah, I, it does seem like a lot of people come to these conclusions saying that it's not enough funding. Um, but I just wonder, is funding kind of the only thing that holds up these processes? Is that why, Do we need more money there? Well, look, funding for research and development is necessary, but it's not sufficient. So you can't do anything without funding. But throwing money at a problem doesn't guarantee it will be solved in the time frame that we, we would all like it to be solved. And over the 30-year or so period I refer to, funding for HIV vaccines has been pretty impressive. It's, it's not just an, a lack of dollars. It's, it takes enormous efforts by a large number of many of large consortia, multiple individual scientists, to figure out the very, very real scientific problems involved in making an HIV vaccine. So it's really oversimplistic to just say, more money was thrown at coronavirus and HIV. You know, I don't have facts and figures to hand, but if you add it all up over 30 years, uh, it's, it's going to be more than what was spent on coronaviruses in the past 12 months. Yeah. Do you think also because now that there are preventatives, there's a feeling of a, there's a lack of urgency to find a real solution that's long term right now? You know, I started working in the 90s. It was pretty much a death sentence for most people. We all had friends who died in those era, in that era. We have friends from that era who survived. I do. You're younger than me. But I have friends who were around in the 90s who wouldn't be alive now if it wasn't for the development of antivirals. And prevention methodologies also increased uh, over the years. So the, the landscape has changed, but there is still a considerable amount of support for the development of an HIV vaccine. My group's primary funding is for HIV research, but during the pandemic, we were repurposed, along with a lot of people, in a very urgent pandemic setting to work on coronavirus vaccines or coronavirus immunology or other coronavirus topics, and that was the right thing to do. Wow. Point, we'll get back to our original skill sets. Yeah. Again, you're hearing from John Moore, professor of microbiology and immunology at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York City. So do you think what we've learned so quickly about the process of COVID, um, do you think that we are more equipped to kind of move forward in a more um, positive way when it comes to HIV vaccine, especially with the, the news coming out and reports coming out about a mutant vaccine, especially because, you know, HIV is a, it has a sophisticated way of mutating. It feels like we're more prepared to handle um, kind of figuring this out moving forward. Well, it works both ways. All of the, a lot of the progress made this past year in coronavirus vaccines is rooted on the, the, the platforms, the research programs, the vaccine platforms that were developed in HIV vaccine programs over the years. So the existence of those technologies allowed them to be repurposed rapidly for coronavirus vaccine development. So we have effective vaccines now for coronavirus because of the scientific infrastructure that the taxpayer and foundations have put in place through funding AIDS vaccine research for so many years and other vaccines, flu vaccines, and we've worked on Zika and, and Ebola that's also helped. And sure, you know, what we're learning this year is bound to have positive spin-offs on HIV vaccine development, but still the fundamental problem is that the kind of methodology that works very quickly with coronaviruses does not work quickly with HIV. I mean, the coronavirus vaccines induce antibodies. And the kinds of antibodies that these vaccines induce hit coronavirus and knock the hell out of it. But the same kinds of antibodies just don't do anything to HIV. And yeah. you said about virus variation, you know, people are now freaking out about coronavirus mutants. And far, fair enough, there's something we have to deal with. These have happened over the course of a year. Well, you know, on the same scale, they'd be happening every day in the HIV landscape. So it's a totally different climate. I mean, viral variation is a huge problem for HIV, and it is much less of a problem for coronavirus. Okay. That's good to know. John, just as we wrap up, a quick answer. Will we ever figure out a vaccine in our lifetime around HIV? Well, you're younger than me. 
Um, you know, I now have official long-term non-progressor status in the HIV vaccine field. So um, who knows? But, you know, we're going to carry on trying. I mean, the, the, you know, the methodology, the, the science improves year by year. It's incremental. Better an increment than an excrement any day. Definitely. All right. That was John Moore, professor of microbiology and immunology at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York City. Thanks again for being here. And coming up on the show, Miley Cyrus's latest remarks about her preferences are bringing up some questions about transphobia. We'll tell you why after this. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Miley Cyrus is getting a lot of heat for these new comments about her sexuality. In a new interview, she not only says that she prefers women to men, but she's also attempting to explain why. And this is where it gets uh, problematic. So she shared this with Sirius XM's Barstool Radio, saying girls are way hotter. We know this. Uh, And I'm saying I agree. We are. We are beautiful to look at. Uh, Everyone, I think, can agree that from ancient times that D words make wonderful sculptures. I think it's a really a good thing to have on a table. She adds, it's good if it can just get in and go away. She dug in even deeper saying, everyone knows that uh, a girl's breasts are prettier than guys stuff down there. That's what ended up making female relationships make more sense to me. So I kind of changed up the words a bit just to be appropriate and for legal reasons here on the radio, but you get what she's saying. And a lot of people called this out for transphobia because we know that someone, someone's genitals does not connect to their gender and that Miley should know that. So Ryan, does intention matter in this case? Should we be really getting so mad at her for sharing this? Yeah, I mean, I think intention doesn't matter at this moment. I think when we're talking about intention, it doesn't really, like I said, it doesn't matter because of the impact that it's having. It offended a lot of people. And yeah, you can intend to be like, oh, I, I meant this in the most positive way, or I'm just talking about my perspective, our experience, but your impact had a negative one. And so you have to be mindful with the the platform that you have and the spotlight that is on you that you just can't say just anything because you think you're having like, um, you know, a funny conversation or you're just joking or whatever you're feeling, right? Um, I think you have to, a lot of people have to acknowledge kind of this underlying sense of like transphobia or just really anything that they have that could be considered a bias against other folks um, and conflating these things. It just, it feels a little just irresponsible. It does. So I understand why people are mad. Yeah, I mean, it seems like from hearing this, uh, how she views her own relationships with people is in a more of a binary way in terms of her attraction. Um, And because she says she's part of the queer community, like, should she know better at this point? Or is this a moment to educate and learn? Yeah, I think just because she's a part of the queer community doesn't necessarily mean she's going to know better because there are a lot of queer folks. And I mean, I'm learning this from being on that app Clubhouse. And we talked about it here before, but it just feels like we live in this kind of elite, you know, bubble, this liberal bubble of ours here in Los Angeles where everyone knows what to say, the the right vocabulary and all these things. But for a lot of queer people outside of this world and space, they don't know the right things. They don't know. They're only going by the experiences around them which can be sad because that means you you're kind of taught in this heteronormative kind of space um but yeah she just needs to know better she has to at least try um and she has to understand that hey i've actually been in a scandal like this before so maybe i need to kind of reevaluate myself before i speak i think people are just so quick to apologize but they don't actually put in the work to understand why they're apologizing yeah, it, it, there's, I mean, I don't even know what she's thinking if she's embarrassed by this. Uh, she obviously sees this is wrong. She she doesn't maybe want to hurt, hurt people, so she wants to learn. But yeah, recognizing this as a learning moment, I think is so clear. And it's okay. It's, it's not okay to make mistakes at the same time. It is okay as long as you're going to change that, right? And acknowledge that. Um, and that mishap you talked about that she made, it was back in actually 2019, where she seemed to imply that being gay is a choice. She said, I always thought I had to be gay because I thought that all guys were evil, but it's not true. There are good people out there that just happen to have D words. And she later apologized for that. So it seems like it's a process for uh, Miss Miley that she's going through, but she's going through it publicly, unfortunately. Uh, Now, coming up on the show, Biden's administration's latest move to support trans troops in the military. We're going to be talking about that next on What's Trending this hour. 
Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, why good news might make you feel sad, plus more commitments from the Biden administration to support trans in the military. Uh, But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. Again, Biden announced his coronavirus response plans and how the federal government plans to take charge. Yet for the past uh, year, we couldn't rely on the federal government to act with the urgency and focus and coordination we needed. And we have seen the tragic cost of that failure. Three to 4,000 deaths per day. To date, more than 24 million Americans, 24 million Americans have been infected. To put that in context, America makes up 4% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's confirmed COVID-19 cases, and only 20% of all the COVID-19 deaths when we have 4% of the world's population. Now, again, this includes vaccination centers and stadiums, gymnasiums, conference centers, speed vaccine production, including using the Defense Production Act and a majority of K through eight schools to open in the first 100 days. And as we've mentioned before, 100 million shots in 100 days. Now, a group of Senate Democrats are filing an ethics complaint against Senators Hawley and Ted Cruz, calling for an investigation to determine whether the pair coordinated with the organizers of the January 6th pro-Trump rally that preceded the deadly riot at the U.S. Capitol. Now, Hawley and Cruz uh, had announced in the days before the riot that they would object to votes counted in states former President Trump falsely claimed to have won during the January 6th electoral vote count, which, quote, amplified claims of election fraud that had resulted in threats of violence against state and local officials around the country. And that's according to the letter. So we'll see what happens with that. And we'll be following that very closely. Now, President Biden also signed a historic LGBTQ plus executive order in his first day in office, and it's being called the most substantive LGBT plus executive order in history. The order ensures that the federal government does not discriminate against anyone on the basis of sexual orientation or sexual identity. Now, the order is particularly relevant to anyone in the community employed by federal agencies. The previous administration had made it harder for trans people to access some healthcare benefits and even removed the words sexual orientation from its workplace discrimination manual. We'd covered this on the show, of course, and so it's nice to see uh, that we all get to breathe again today. Yes, I know. I totally agree. It feels so yeah. much better. It's lighter. Mm-hmm. The, the show is even easier for us. Yep. I mean, that's actually an interesting point. I do wonder, and a lot of people are talking about this, if our like media coverage is going to get boring because Trump's no longer in the office, which honestly, I'd rather take boring news coverage than the stresses and the trauma of a, a Trump administration. I couldn't do it again. Yeah. I mean, I think in general, there feels to be a communal sense of ease, right? And optimism and positivity, like a feeling like we can all have a sigh of relief and move forward. And that feels exciting. Definitely. Anyway, that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay. So why are JoJo Siwa fans speculating about her sexuality again? Um, It's time for your tea report. Those pop culture stories trending right now. So here's what kind of started it. Um, She shared a video of herself singing along to Lady Gaga's song, Born This Way. Um, She uploaded it to TikTok. And basically it was, uh, she was lip syncing during the part where Gaga sings, no matter gay, straight or bi, lesbian, transgender life, Mm. you know. Um, And she basically uh, was lip syncing this. She was wearing a rainbow bow on her head. And then, so of course people were like, oh my God, we're so excited for you. This is great but she never said anything. And then later she posted another video dancing to Paramore's Ain't It Fun, which is one of my favorite songs. Uh, but she was dancing with the, the stars from the Teen Beach movie and then a couple other queer like known uh, like influencers. And she mouthed the words, baby, now you're one of us. And the caption had hashtag Pride House LA. Um, oh. so Wait, is that a new influencer house, Pride it, House? Here's the thing, like that's that's what people are saying, right? And so celebs and fans immediately started showing her support and saying congratulations, congratulations, but no one has said anything. JoJo hasn't said anything. 
Um, you know, her reps haven't said anything. So I'm just not sure what this is. It feels kind of weird. I already think coming out is super oppressive. Um, but it just feels, I don't know. I just don't know. She's 17. Should we really be caring about her sexuality? Well, yeah, you, you always think JoJo's like six or something. For yeah. some reason, like she's always going to be very young, but she's becoming obviously a young woman. And uh, I think that for her to come out while we wish we didn't have that, to have people doing that anymore, I think it, it definitely could be huge for those following her. Those oh, yeah. Really young kids. yeah. I mean, yeah, she has young fans and I think it could really change and shift a lot of things. But until she says so, until she's ready, just because she's doing these videos, dancing yeah. doesn't mean anything. We should speculate. Yes. And so yeah. let us know what you think at LGT Show Everywhere. And of course, I love these stories that I covered. You, sh- you can check them out too at wearechannelq.com. That's your team report. Now, yesterday was a good day. It was a good news type of day, but maybe some of you felt sad. We'll explain why this happens and why you're not alone next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. It's been a tense few years slash year. Your emotions might be everywhere. It's understandable. But according to experts, why good news can also make you sad it's happening. And if that sounds familiar, well, you're not alone and it's okay. Here to explain why is Elizabeth Ojito, who's a psychotherapist in the Bay Area, specializing in treatment for emotional and relational challenges while centering culture and connection. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So why do some people still feel sad when receiving or seeing good news? Yeah, I I think people experience a range of emotions in, you know, sort of seeing like the inauguration and, um, and all that, you know, sort of it brought up for us. And I think it actually felt like a a moment of safety and relief, especially since January 6th. Um, And that kind of brought up everything, you know, good and bad, and that all comes to the surface at the same time. And so, you know, sort of feeling so proud on one hand, but then on the other hand, really, having enough safety for the first time to feel the grief of this four years, you know, and especially what we've been feeling in this um, past week. Yeah, but how do you cope with that? Because I think that those mixtures of emotions can be quite confusing, which if it, if you're a person like me, I would kind of beat myself up for that, right? Because if you're in the moment trying to experience this happiness, but then in the back of your mind, you're still kind of just over it. How do you move past that? Yeah, I think it kind of begins with first just labeling what you're experiencing and not judging it. I think there can be this sense of that there's a right way to do things like, oh, it's supposed to be this jubilant moment and I'm supposed to feel this way. And I think sometimes that can be that second judgmental voice in our head. Mm -hmm. And instead, why don't we just talk about the both and of the moment, like, you know, sort of, you know, wow, this is happening. And I still feel afraid as a black person to move around, you know, like those two things are are real, you know, and particularly for folks of color, like we're holding these um, opposing things at the same time. And that acknowledgement kind of gives us a break, you know, to practice that self-compassion around how complex the moment is. What's it's that? it's it's nuanced and it's really challenging. You could say it, right? Like yeah. what you're saying, we're like, yeah, nodding our heads. It totally makes sense. But putting it into action is obviously more challenging. Mm-hmm. Uh, how how do you then do that, right? Like if, if someone is saying, yes, this makes sense to me. I want to start today. Next time I'm triggered, I want to g- go there. What should they do? Yeah, I think in the moment by moment of labeling, I I really kind of take examples from mindfulness practice, you know, and so so that begins with first just taking a breath into whatever you're feeling. And I know that sounds like a small thing, but when we're scrolling or on Twitter or on Instagram, like we're not really breathing very deeply and like really taking in what we're feeling and having enough room to like label it or experience it. So I, I start with the breath as like my like number one moment to moment tip of uh, like first take a big deep breath that like fills your chest and fills your belly and like and take it in. And then from there kind of let the emotions guide you in a way because there might be something that you're needing in the moment. You know, and I think one big thing yesterday was community, was Mm -hmm. other people who get it, you know, to turn to somebody else and be like, did you see that too? Like when Michelle and Kamala, like, yeah, yeah, that nod. And so like when you see that too, like that kind of we resonate and that's very life-giving and energetic and necessary, you know. And so, yeah, as far as putting things into place, I know there's like the individual things we can do for 
ourselves and those are really good um and then like you know finding community those online spaces you know the friends the people who you can like turn to um and even in the pandemic right now yeah process it, resonance yeah. exactly yeah so like yeah processing you you process with friends you don't only need a therapist to do that you can yeah. definitely process in with others Again, you're hearing the voice of Elizabeth Ojito, who's a psychotherapist in the Bay Area who works with people of color, focusing on culture. So what's the balance? Um, you know, besides giving yourself grace and space, which is a beautiful thing that I think we should all be doing, but kind of what's that balance when you start to realize, well, maybe the grace and space isn't working. Maybe there's something more there to the situation. Like, how do you kind of know the signs when you kind of understand what that balance is, Right. Yeah, yeah. Grace and Space, I think, is a great start. And then from there, like, trying to figure out, like, what's the next right action, you know, is like a place of investigation. And sometimes we need help, you know, so, so that's the piece around, you know, so when we talk about self-care, that's like, the oh, the things I do for myself. And then we also talk about community care, that like, who are the folks around me that I can kind of brainstorm and really think through like okay like where's the the action that comes next you know sort of in the the organizing and things that we see happening like that's that ends up being that next place is really um, having that sounding board maybe it is a therapist maybe it is a coach you know as well like bringing in um like you know sort of somebody else to really resonate with you and help you out Yeah, you you said in the article, which is so powerful, black and brown people simply do not have the option of forgetting when white supremacy is emboldened in the ways that we have witnessed, referring, of course, to the Capitol insurrection. And it's emotionally intelligent um, for those communities to stay alert, connected to each other and also feel a full range of emotions from anger to sadness in light of the current state of affairs. What can we do to be there for each other, um, you know, and white accomplices and allies be there for our friends as well and, and really work together as a community, right now as we move forward. Yeah, I think sort of for folks who are white folks who are allies and want to be accomplices, it's that really doing the work, you know, not necessarily turning to the friend of color or somebody else to um, tell you what to do. You know, I think there's a lot of white ally spaces that have come up and information and and folks you can um, follow. And there are just all these resources that are out there. So starting there around, you know, what can I do to be really informed? Um, And then being really honest, you know, sort of with folks of color in your life around what you know and what you don't know, but not holding them responsible for having to kind of teach you. So important. Well, Elizabeth Ojito, psychotherapist in the Bay Area. Thank you so much for being here. We appreciate you. Thanks for having me. Really wonderful to be here. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks, Shira. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. We're wrapping up the show as we always do with our Yes Queen of the Day. Yes, Queen. Lloyd Austin is a retired army general and is Biden's pick to oversee the U.S. armed forces. Speaking at a Senate Armed Services confirmation hearing, Austin said he fully supports Biden's promise to overturn the Trump administration ban on trans people serving openly in the military. And asked by Senator Kirsten Gillibrand to give his thoughts on the transphobic law, here's what he had to say. I support the president's plan or uh, plan to... uh to overturn the uh, the ban. Uh, I truly believe, uh, Senator, that as I said in my opening statement, that if you are fit and you're qualified uh, to serve and you can maintain the standards, you should be allowed to serve. And you can expect that, uh, that I will support that throughout. After the hearing, Gillibrand released a statement of her own saying, after years of fighting to overturn the ban on open transgender military service, we welcome and applaud Mr. Austin's support for overturning the discriminatory prohibition on transgender people serving in our military. Individuals who are willing to put on the uniform of our country and risk their lives to defend our freedoms should be received with uh, commendation, not prejudice. So that is a a beautiful turn of events there that we are witnessing. So congratulations to Lloyd Austin and also Kirsten Gillibrand for stepping it up and really um, speaking up for the matter as well. Yes, Queen. And more importantly, I think the overarching Biden administration for making these decisions and setting that precedent. I know. Finally, it just feels so good to have people doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Now, Nate Evans, an Iowa teacher, is building desks for students who are learning remotely during the pandemic. I love these stories. He launched the project he calls Woodworking with a Purpose. He and 50 plus volunteers have built roughly 600 desks for kids after he noticed some were logged into virtual classes while sitting at kitchen tables or on their beds. 
He said this, it's for kids who have absolutely nothing to kids who have everything they've wanted, but don't have the space because it wasn't available. Somebody had to provide it. And I thought, why not me? So he's the one who first paid for all the supplies. But after posting his idea to Facebook, community donations started flooding in. So woodworking with a purpose is a core cause through core foundation. So you can donate now. It's now officially part of a nonprofit. So it's called Woodworking with a Purpose if you want to find out more. And he gets our Yaz Queen of the Day, Nate Evans. Yes, Queen. It's like I have like a button that I press every time I say I say that and you say that. It's pretty amazing. It is a button, Shira. What are you talking about? Oh, yes. We are tech savvy here. Now, that does it for our show today, but we are back tomorrow. We're going to be talking about the historic unemployment crisis that we're in and what Biden plans to do to solve it, plus uh, how Trump could theoretically get his Facebook back. Yikes. Mm. That is tomorrow, live on Channel Q, 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Again, we post all our shows and our interviews as a podcast. So catch up on our show. Join the family. Just go to the radio.com app or where podcasts are available and search. Let's go there. Now we are sending you love and light. And honey, remember to slay. See you tomorrow. Have a great night. Bye, y'all.